Hello, happy Tuesday, and welcome to GradCast. My name is Yiman Chen, and I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Joyla. Hi. Hello. So today, our guest is the esteemed Martin Ross, a PhD student in music theory here at the, uh, the Don Wright Faculty of Music. Is that right? That's right. Hello. Excellent. How are you doing today, Marty? Good. How are you? Oh, excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about what you study here uh, at Western? So as a music theory PhD candidate, my main focus is on music and minimalism. So I feel like I've heard this term before, but uh, what is minimalism when it comes to music? Minimalism is a genre that originated around the late 1960s as uh, a type of music that uses process and very little musical material and using that mu music material to subject it through very slow, very gradual process over time. Well, this might be just something on my mind lately, but does it have anything at all to do with this, this whole like Marie Kondo thing where less is more and it's all like about tidying up, doing more with less? And huh. um, I guess if you want to put it into the aspects of music, music, I think what the composers at the time when thinking of works as in, in the whole, as a whole, rather than just the specific nitty gritty parts, um, I mean, you take those nitty gritty parts, but there's this whole conception of a process to make it go through. And that as the whole is what makes up the work. And so where did minimalism come from and why did it start, sort of what preceded mm. it? So what preceded it was um, the practices of some experimental music in um, uh, New York, uh, one of two places where I arguably believe um, minimalism got popular, the other being San Francisco, um, to start. Uh, in New York City in the 19 late 50s, early 60s, there was this practice of artists and performers that uh, focused on the expression of their works. Most notably, no, I mean, we, this era of music as well as art is generally thought of as uh, abstract expressionism. Um, so in the, in the arts realm, your Jackson Pollock would be labeled as mm -hmm. an abstract expressionist. In the music realm, it was um, John Cage really set the tone and, and set the kind of compositional practice of abstract expressionism. Uh, John Cage, is he the uh, the composer famous for that one work, like 433? Yeah, that's right. So 433 is a piece that um, really focuses on sound. Just sound is not abstract, but part of your environment is the work itself. So what it instructs the performer to do is just sit at usually it's at a piano mm -hmm. and it's performed uh the score is it tells the performer it's actually in three movements and it instructs the performer to be um tacit tacit is a musical instruction is that you just don't play so you're just to the audience to the listener visually you're just seeing someone not playing not playing or doing anything mm. at all but conceptually, you're hearing the air conditioner, you're hearing breaths, you're hearing you're hearing sounds that really sometimes that really your your mind really just um, takes out of commission and blocks out 
Yeah, and that was very, and that was one of John Cage's main interests: is what is or isn't music, and what is sound, what is silence. To him, silence um, isn't a thing. He actually went to a university into a hyperbaric chamber where mm. nothing can get in or out, just to see. And he said that what he heard was something high and something low. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this had to do with something. I mean physiologically like he, he could hear parts of his body just there wow cool yeah so for him music was organized sound and for that that, that was a novel concept to a lot of people especially then once you put that out there you can be you can really take that um uh to this sort of experimental notion of how to portray music and so you got these groups performers uh, the fluxus artists for instance were these performers that had different compositions that were almost theatrical in a sense but were portrayed as music too so kind of like a performance art where where the performance of it the like you said before mm-hmm. process yeah is sort of the point right so arguably for me one of the founding the founder of minimal minimalism in music was Lamont Young and one of the pieces he had in this sort of fluxus movement, because he was a part of it, mm-hmm. was um, a couple of pieces dedicated to this pianist, David Tudor. One of them was to leave a, it was either a bale of hay or a bucket of water <laughs> um, next to the piano. And when you feel like the piano is satisfied with how much it's consumed, <laughs> then you can take that away. And that is the performance. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so the piano um, is essentially a horse, kind of. It's uh, yes, as its own thing. Yeah. Okay. It, 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 to transcend beyond, I guess, being an instrument. But it's a very interesting <laughs> time. So Lamont Young, another pr- person very interested in sound. Um, one of his, er- I mean, early memories was just hearing the phone lines and the buzzes of the phone lines and, mm-hmm. and being interested. Um, so one of the first pieces that I believe is uh, deemed minimalist is from a set of works titled Composition 1960 with the uh, numbered um, pieces. So number seven, if I'm not mistaken, is the one where you play two notes with the interval of a perfect fifth and let that go for and, and just let that play for until it goes out. So what Lamont Young was very focused on was um, very long tones, harmonic relations through their own respective ratios. So pitches, pitch relations, each pitch has a sort of interval pitch, pitch intervals, sorry. So two pitches sounding at the same time, once they have an interval, they actually have a sort of um, a fraction relation of, um, so for instance, a two to one relation is uh, the span of an octave of, and so Lamont Young was very interested with that. And sometimes with and most lots of his works that uh, using these harmonic relations and subjecting it through a drone, having a drone go and just exploring harmonic relations through the drone with different intervals was one of them. Um, so once that kicked off, then some other composers came around too. And so along with Lamont Young, the other three composers that were kind of codified the 
compositional practice of minimalism would be Terry Riley, Steve Reich, and Philip Glass. And and the term minimalism, there's a lot of hearsay of where it came from musically or to deem these composers as minimalist composers. One mm-hmm. one of the hearsay, I guess, is um, another composer, Michael Nyman, kind of setting that label. Um, Reich and Glass did not like the word minimalism, <laughs> minimalist to describe their works. Um, but, I mean, as a means to codify the, this sort of structure and content and process, it, it makes sense to me. Um, okay. I hope it makes sense. I mean, that's what I've been concentrating on for quite some time. So <laughs> I was going to ask, um, so the transition from abstract expressionism to yeah. minimalism, was there a lot of criticism around that time well, period? Uh, historically, I think, I mean, it was just a sign of the times really is just getting away from abstract expression, getting away from these chance pieces and this indeterminate actions that are usually brought on by the composer for the instructing the performer to do. Minimalist, minimalism seeks to um, reduce a lot of that. Now, when it began, there were some instructional aspects about some minimal works about how many times things can be repeated or how long durational wise should a piece go on what tempo should you take and so how has minimalism developed over the years so um what's unique about all these composers is that i mean they'll have so compositionally like i said um minimalism is grounded in process each composer has their kind of unique take on process so as I said before with Lamont Young, um, this sort of harmonic ratio relations. Um, Philip Glass likes this sort of additive, subtractive. Um, some of his earlier works of music um, of this, two pages, music in contrary motion, all have that kind of same element. For me, one of the more interesting um, uh, composer that I've focused on um, is Steve Reich, and his compositional technique of process has been grounded in phase. Now, phase is very interesting, and the best way to describe it is a type of uh, metaphor of um, or visual of if you're sitting at a light and you're in the turn lane, and let's say you have two cars in front of you, if you kind if you focus on let's say you're in the left turn lane so you look at their left light mm-hmm. left lights um, you might see that they line up that the blinks line up but then at some point one of those blinks is just that minuscule second faster and so over time that blink becomes slowly separated from the other car and so you will get to a point where um, each car, well, they first start out in this sort of, let's say, a unison, that they're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get to a point where one blinks while the other one doesn't, and you get to this halfway point, and then you move forward, and you get back to a point where they're doing that unison again. 
So they sort of like start together, separate, and then come back together. That's and it. it's going like in and out of phase yeah. that way. That's, okay. That's, so that was what Steve Reich was, that's where he got his sort of, his novelty of what process was for him. Um, and he, his take on that uh, musically started at the San Francisco Tape Center where he noticed this. His first tape piece that kind of, exemplifies this is called It's Gonna Rain and it's hmm. um, a take on a pastor talking about Noah's Ark um, in the street and he recorded it <laughs> and he just focused on those three words, it's gonna rain and he noticed that once you, you know, make like a, a copy of, of that original but make that copy speed up that you get this process unfolding like two cars at a traffic stop. Moving from tapes, tape works to uh, instrumental works, where his um, piano phase is a piece where you have two performers playing the same eight-note cellular figure that hmm. drives the whole piece. And one performer will speed up. And in the case of this, the performer speeds up to get one note ahead and then stays there for a little bit and then speeds up again and gets two notes ahead and keeps going until it reaches that point where you go the other direction and come back to that sort of unison. other works that he uses phase just not as the underlying process but the last work he uses as process is uh, clapping music and it's 12 units of a rhythm that goes da 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 you can have a minimum of two performers one performer stays on the constant other person that is I guess the variable or uh, will shift that one note forward and Instead of the kind of going forward and going backward metaphor, you're going in one linear direction. So it's a total aggregate of 12 units. It's one, two, three, pause, one, two, pause, one, pause, two. Maybe a pause? Okay. And a pause, okay. <laughs> I'm just checking my math. Um, and um, what's unique about it is that it has a kind of circular property that you mm -hmm. would hear, but it doesn't go back to what was. It just goes forward to what is.
always require two performers then? So, I mean, for, for a Reich piece like that, yes, because you want those, it, it has to have those parameters of the constant and then right. the person and the per, the shifter, the shifter, I guess. Mm -hmm. There are other works. We mentioned one plus one, this piece by Phil Glass, which is, it's very interesting. It's this piece was written in 1968, which is quite one of the earlier Phil Glass and even in minimalism standards. So you have two notes or two rhythmic units, dug it up or duh, and you interchange them however you want. But he does instruct you to make a continuous, regular, arithmetic progression. So there has to be some order to it. And even on the score, he has examples. So my argument for that paper is um, what degrees of determinacy is there? Is it, is it predetermined? Does it, how much liberty does the performer have um, in their choices? Well, about, so talking about this piece, one plus one. Yeah. Uh, w would you be able to give us um, like a, a an idea of what does it sound like? Sure. So if it, um, one example that Phil Glass has is um, is using the the duh, which is just an eighth note, um, adding and then subtracting to make up sort of palindromic, and with every addition or every separation of this. Um, let's say you want to do one eighth note and then two eighth notes plus three plus four. All of those units are separated by the other rhythmic, rhythmic unit. So dug it So I could probably I'm, I'm much better at speaking it out than I am with it, it is instructed for the performer to do it on amplified tabletop um, with their fingers or knuckles. But um, let me see if I can do this uh, and I'll do like a palindrome with let's go up to seven, I guess. Cool. Uh, so it would go something like <laughs> something like that yeah wow. something like that bravo well thanks yeah oh, so yeah. That so was so really yeah cool. thank, thank you yeah um so what hopefully what it's supposed to exemplify is has two units mm -hmm. just two very small comp uh, compositional units a process that went through of just adding more to it and subtracting pretty i mean yeah yeah so like the way you've been talking about Minimalism music in these performances is, uh, I think, has been very mathematical. You know, adding yeah. and subtracting. You've talked mm -hmm. about constant constants and variables. Mm -hmm. w was that a, an influence um, in this movement? Um, for some, I mean, uh, especially with Lamont Young. I mean, you, it, you harmonic ratio relationships like that go all the way back to uh, Pythagoras. Pythagoras for music theorists is like almost the original music theorist of. Uh, mapping out distance relations between what we call this instrument called the monochord and um, how we separate intervals through harmonic ratios, um, like I mentioned before. Right. Um, he also had influences of this um, other influential uh, theorist, Hermann von Helmholtz, on, and he does a lot of harmonic relations as well. And um, uh, he has a treatise on kind of 
treatise on this. And Lamont Young has is most definitely familiar because I talked to one of his students at a at a conference once, and he's like, "Yeah, he had me read that treatise." I was like, "So dope, so cool." <laughs> For me, that was really cool to hear. But yeah, mathematically, I mean, yeah, if you want to put it in those, put it in that way, I mean. I think a lot of people, even with music theorists, trying to find some sort of methodology to make it understand what what's going on, it is really easy to put it in mathematical terms. And it could be put in the light of something that seems pretty, uh, I don't know, dry, mechanistic. I don't know if those are the right words, but um, my research uh, focuses on what the list, how listeners experience minimalism. Because to me, minimalism just sounding um, is so much different than your typical Mozart or Beethoven, um, even uh, even 20th century, even John Cage. Minimalism is much more different. Um, and so how are you measuring the experience of the listener in the context um, of your research? That's a really good question. Um, so this, this is more, yeah, t- kind of a little bit more pre- preliminary, but... Uh, even just like a conceptualization of um, every human has a tendency, even just like grouping, like we like to chunk, we like to put things together. So mm-hmm. even some sort of like repetition. So like with one plus one, mm-hmm. uh, one of my things with that paper that I'm doing is um, can't, do we just naturally, even just the common listener, don't we just naturally chunk things together or group them? There's a lot of interesting um, methodologies and theories out there of um of other theorists, um, like generative theory kind of looks at this and this like equating music to kind of grammar of grouping things in a grammatical structure. So, I mean, even with, I mean, with minimalism in this process compared to, I say it has more parameters than it did with abstract expressionism. Right. But if you even compare it to, let's say like a Mozart sonata or a Beethoven symphony, um, those have, just such the, the the so because the kind of like pre like preconceived notions of our or predispositions of some music um, play much more play much better to how listeners can listen to let's say a Mozart or Beethoven sonata um, where I think with the harmony and melody together um, paints a nice. Uh, has a nice arrangement where the music itself can guide you along pretty well. Whereas with minimalism, I argue that it takes a lot more attention to appreciate um, and to understand. Uh, so it, for some, it takes practice Um it could be easily I mean that was one of the biggest criticism is just like this is just all the same and it's just super like everything's just repeated and there's just like eighth notes everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> like um, one of Reich's pieces four organs a lady went up to the stage started banging her head on the stage like she was not happy <laughs> um, so but I mean in minimalism what's great is that it's it's made its way into film it's made its well like I said I mean Phil Glass is a very well-known film composer mm-hmm. um it, it it bodes itself well to um, kind of uh, multimedia and mm-hmm. multimedia and visual. Um, um, Are you a composer yourself? No. No. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, yeah. 
So, and I mean, there are branches of minimalism that, or minimalist composers that kind of um, take focus on like sonic meditation. Pauline Oliveros is a very good example. Um, phenomenal composer. And um, there's some that feel that is like a, a uh, some uh, kind of focus on it being backtrack mu- like Muzak. Like there's a fight of Muzak <laughs> or a dichotomy of, you know, minimalism Muzak. And the one of the most uh, exe- like exemplar composers of that is Brian Eno and his early electronic music, which is like, it's super relaxing to listen to. And it's mm-hmm. just, but when it comes to, you know, bringing it back to like process-based minimalist composers, um, the Reich, Riley, Young, and Glass are the ones that, I mean, I've primarily focused on. And um, not to say that all their music today, I, they've moved quite a bit away from what they've done and since the 70s. Um, uh, they've moved on. They have luckily uh, quite successful um, and um, still one of the most popular composers today to commission, compose, and perform. So pulling back a little bit, you, you mentioned that you don't compose any no. music, but do you play any yourself? Um, I did my undergrad as a clarinet performance major. Um, it's been a while since I played, but um, okay. and then I play piano really badly. Like my students get a kick out of it. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Karaoke. Oh yes, <laughs> that's why I was really good with the one plus one is just do a bunch of karaoke. Actually, I can totally attest to that. You're a, a brilliant karaoke performer. Thank you. I'd love to see that thank sometime. <laughs> well, Martin Ross, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're listening to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students at Western. We bring you grad student interviews every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CHRW. You can download our episodes on Podbeam, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at at GradCastRadio. Um, If you would like to join us and share your research on a future episode, you can email us at gradcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.